The following is a reading from the life of Robert Murray McChain by Andrew Bonar, The Days of Revival. They shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the water courses, Isaiah 44, verse 4. McChain's people, who had never ceased to pray for him, welcomed his arrival among them with the greatest joy. He reached Dundee on a Thursday afternoon, and in the evening of the same day, being the usual time for prayer in St. Peter's. After a short meditation, he hastened to the church, there to render thanks to the Lord and to speak once more to his flock. The appearance of the church that evening and the aspect of the people he never could forget. Many of his brethren were present to welcome him and to hear the first words of his open lips. There was not a seat in the church unoccupied. The passages were completely filled, and the stairs up to the pulpit were crowded, on the one side with the aged, on the other with eagerly listening children. Many a face was seen anxiously gazing on their restored pastor. Many were weeping under the unhealed wounds of conviction. All were still and calm, intensely earnest to hear. He gave out Psalm 66 in a manner of singing which had been remarked since the revival began appeared to him peculiarly sweet. So tender and affecting as if the people felt that they were praising a present God. After solemn prayer with them, he was able to preach for above an hour. Not knowing how long he might be permitted to proclaim the glad tidings, he seized that opportunity not to tell of his journeyings, but to show the way of life to sinners. His subject was 1 Corinthians 2, 1-4, the matter, the manner, and the accompaniments of Paul's preaching. It was a night to be remembered. On coming out of the church, he found the road to his house crowded with old and young, who were waiting to welcome him back. He had to shake hands with many at the same time, and before this happy multitude would disperse, had to speak some words of life to them again and pray with them where they stood. To thy name, O Lord, he said that night when he returned to his home, to thy name, O Lord, be all the glory. A month afterwards he was visited by one who had hitherto stood out against all the singular influence of the revival, but who that night was deeply awakened under his words so that the arrow festered in her soul till she came crying, Oh, my hard, hard heart. On the Sabbath he preached to his flock in the afternoon. He chose Second Chronicles 5, verse 13 and 14 as a subject. And in the close, his hearers remembered well how affectionately and solemnly he said, Dearly beloved and longed for, I now begin another year of my ministry among you, and I am resolved, if God give me health and strength, that I will not let a man, woman, or child among you alone until you have at least heard the testimony of God concerning his Son, either to your condemnation or salvation. And I will pray, as I have done before, that if the Lord will indeed give us a great outpouring of his Spirit, he will do it in such a way that it will be evident to the weakest child among you that it is the Lord's work and not man's. I think I may say to you, as Rutherford said to his people, your heaven would be two heavens to me. And if the Lord be pleased to give me a crown from among you, I do hear promise in the sight that I will cast it at his feet, saying, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and to the Lamb for ever and ever. 
It was much feared for a time that a jealous spirit would prevail among the people of St. Peter's. Some saying, I am of Paul, and others, I of Cephas. Those recently converted were apt to regard their spiritual father in a light in which they could regard none besides. But Mr. McChane had received from the Lord a holy disinterestedness that suppressed every feeling of envy. Many wondered at the single-heartedness he was enabled to exhibit. He could sincerely say, I have no desire but the salvation of my people by whatever instrument. Never, perhaps, was there one placed in better circumstances for testing the revival impartially, and seldom has any revival been more fully tested. He came among a people whose previous character he knew. He found a work wrought among them during his absence in which he had not had any direct share. He returned home to go out and in among them, and to be a close observer of all that had taken place. And after a faithful and prayerful examination, he did most unhesitatingly say that the Lord had wrought great things whereof he was glad. And in the case of many of those whose souls were saved in that revival, he discovered remarkable answers to the prayers of himself and of those who had come to the truth before he left them. He wrote to me his impressions of the work when he had been a few weeks among his people. December 2nd, 1839. Reverend Andrew Bonar, Cullis. My dear Andrew, I begin upon note paper because I have no other on hand but our thin traveling paper. I have much to tell you and to praise the Lord for. I am grieved to hear that there are no marks of the Spirit's work about Cullis during your absence, but if Satan drive you to your knees, he will soon find cause to repent it. Remember how fathers do to their children when they ask bread. How much more shall our Heavenly Father give all good things to them that ask Him? Remember the rebuke which I once got from old Mr. Dempster of Denny after preaching to his people. I was highly pleased with your discourse, but in prayer it struck me that you thought God unwilling to give. Remember Daniel at the beginning of thy supplications the commandment came forth. And do not think you are forgotten by me as long as I have health and grace to pray. Everything here I have found in a state better than I expected. The night I arrived I preached to such a congregation as I never saw before. I do not think another person could have got into the church, and there was every sign of the deepest and tenderest emotion. R. MacDonald was with me and prayed. Affliction and success in the ministry have taught and quickened him. I preached on 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1-4, to and felt what I have often heard, that it is easy to preach where the Spirit of God is. On a Friday night, Mr. Burns preached. On the Sabbath, I preached on that wonderful passage in Second Chronicles 5, verses 13 and 14. Mr. Burns preached twice, morning and evening. His views of divine truth are clear and commanding. There is a great deal of substance in what he preaches, and his manner is very powerful, so much so that he sometimes made me tremble. In private he is deeply prayerful and seems to feel his danger of falling into pride. I have seen many of the awakened and many of the saved. Indeed, this is a pleasant place compared with what it once was. Some of the awakened are still in the deepest anxiety and distress. Their great error is exactly what your brother Horace told me. They think that coming to Christ is some strange act of their mind, different from believing what God has said of his Son. So much so that they will tell you with one breath, I believe all that. 
God has said, and yet with the next complain that they cannot come to Christ or close with Christ. It is very hard to deal with this delusion. I find some old people deeply shaken. They feel insecure. One confirmed drunkard has come to me and is, I believe, now a saved man. Some little children are evidently saved. All that I have yet seen are related to converts of my own. One, eleven years old, is a singular instance of divine grace. When I asked if she desired to be made holy, she said, Indeed, I often wish I was, that I might not be a sinner any more. A.L., fifteen-year-old, is a fine, tender-hearted believer. W.S., ten, is also a happy boy. Many of my own dear children and the Lord are much advanced, much more full of joy, their hearts lifted up in the ways of the Lord. I have found many more savingly impressed under my own ministry than I knew of. Some have come to tell me. In one case, a whole family saved. I have hardly met with anything to grieve me. Surely the Lord has dealt bountifully with me. I fear, however, that the Great Spirit has in some measure passed by. I hope soon to return in greater power than ever. The weak meetings are thinner now. I will turn two of them into my classes soon, and so give solid regular instruction of which they stand greatly in need. I have not met with one case of extravagance or false fire, although doubtless there may be many. At first they used to follow in a body to our house and expected many an address and prayer by the road. They have given up this now. I preached last Sabbath twice, first on Isaiah 28, verses 14 to 18, and then on Revelation 12, verse 11, overcame by the blood of the Lamb. It was a very solemn day. The people willingly sat till it was dark. Many make it a place of bokim. Still there is nothing of the power which has been. I have tried to persuade Mr. Burns to stay with us, and I think he will remain in Dundee. I feel fully stronger in body than when I left you. Instead of exciting me, there is everything to solemnize and steal my feelings. Eternity sometimes seems very near. I would like your advice about prayer meetings, how to consolidate them, what rules should be followed, if any, whether there should be mere reading of the word and prayer or free converse also on the passage. We begin today a ministerial prayer meeting to be held every Monday at 11 for an hour and a half. This is a great comfort and may be a great blessing. Of course, we do not invite the colder ministers that would only damp our meeting. Tell me if you think this is right. And now, dear Andrew, I must be done, for it is very late. May your people share in the quickening that has come over Dundee. I feel it a very powerful argument with many. Will you be left dry when others are getting drops of heavenly dew? Try this with your people. I think it probable we shall have another communion again before the regular one. It seems very desirable. You will come and help us, and perhaps Horace, too. I thought of coming back by Collis from Errol, if our Glasgow meeting had not come in the way. Will you set a going your Wednesday meeting again, immediately? Farewell, dear Andrew. O oh, man, greatly beloved, fear not, peace be to thee, be strong, yea, be strong. Yours ever, and so on. To Mr. Burns he thus expresses himself on December 19th. My dear brother, I shall never be able to thank you for all your labors among the precious souls committed to me, and what is worse, I can never thank God fully for his kindness and grace, which every day appear to me more remarkable. 
He has answered prayer to me in all that has happened in a way which I have never told anyone. Again on the 31st. Stay where you are, dear brother, as long as the Lord has any work for you to do. If I know my own heart, its only desire is that Christ may be glorified by souls flocking to him and abiding in him and reflecting his image. And whether it be in Perth or Dundee should signify little to us. You know, I told you my mind plainly that I thought the Lord had so blessed you in Dundee that you were called to a fuller and deeper work there. But if the Lord accompanies you to other places, I have nothing to object. The Lord strengthened my body and soul last Sabbath, and my spirit also was glad. The people were much alive in the Lord's service. But, oh, dear brother, the most are Christless still, the rich are almost untroubled. His evidence on the subject is given fully in his answers to the queries put up by a committee of the Aberdeen Presbytery. And in a note to a friend, he incidentally mentions a pleasing result of this widespread awakening. I find many souls saved under my own ministry, whom I never knew of before. They are not afraid to come out now. It has become so common a thing to be concerned about the soul. At that time also, many came from a distance. One came from the north, who had been a year in deep distress of soul, to seek Christ in Dundee. In his brief diary, he records on December 3rd that twenty anxious souls had that night been conversing with him, many of them very deeply interesting. He occasionally fixed an evening for the purpose of meeting with those who were awakened, and in one of his notebooks there are at least four hundred visits recorded made to him by inquiring souls in the course of that and the following years. He observed that those who had been believers formerly had got their hearts enlarged and were greatly established and some seemed able to feed upon the truth in a new manner. As when one related to him now, there had been for some time appeared a glory in the reading of the word in public, quite different from reading it alone. At the same time, he saw backslidings, both among those whom believers had considered really converted, and among those who had been deeply convicted, though never reckoned among the really saved. He notes in his book, quote, called to see. Poor lad, he seems to have gone back from Christ, led away by evil company, and yet I felt sure of him at one time. What blind creatures ministers are, man looketh at the outward appearance. One morning he was visited by one of his flock, proposing a concert for prayer on the following Monday in behalf of those who had fallen back, that God's Spirit might reawaken them. So observant were the believers, as well as their pastor of declensions. Among those who were awakened but never truly converted, he mentions one case, quote, January 9th, 1840, met with a case of one who had been frightened during the late work, so that her bodily health was injured. She seems to have no care now about her soul. It has only filled her mouth with evil speaking that many who promised fair drew back and walked no more with Jesus is true. Out of about 800 souls who during the months of the revival conversed with different ministers in apparent anxiety, no wonder surely if many proved to have been impressed only for a time. Jonathan Edwards considered it likely that in such cases a proportion of real conversions might resemble the proportion of blossoms in spring and fruit in autumn. 
Nor can anything be more unreasonable than to doubt the truth of all because of the deceit of some. The world itself does not so act in judging of its own. The world reckons upon the possibility of being mistaken in many cases, and yet does not cease to believe that there is honesty and truth to be found. One of themselves, a poet of their own, has said with no less justice than beauty, quote, Angels are brighter still, though the brightest fail, and though foul things put on the brows of grace, yet grace must still look so. But above all, we have the authority of the Word of God declaring that such backslidings are the very tests of the true church. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. 1 Corinthians 11.19 It is not, however, meant that any who had really believed went back to perdition. On the contrary, it is the creed of every sound evangelical church that those who do go back to perdition were persons who never really believed in Jesus. Their eyes may have been opened to see the dread realities of sin and of the wrath to come, but if they saw not righteousness for their guilty souls in the Savior, there is nothing in all of Scripture to make us expect that they will continue awake. Awake them that sleepest, and Christ will give thee light, is a call, inviting sinners to a point far beyond mere conviction. One who for a whole year went back to folly said, Your sermon on the corruption of the heart made me despair. And so I gave myself up to my old ways, attending dances, learning songs, and so on. A knowledge of our guilt and a sense of danger will not of themselves keep us from falling. Nay, these, if alone, may, as in the above case, thrust us down the slippery places. We are truly secure only when our eye is on Jesus and our hand locked in his hand, so that the history of backslidings, instead of leading us to doubt the reality of grace in believers, will only be found to teach us two great lessons, namely, the vast importance of pressing immediate salvation on awakened souls, and the reasonableness of standing in doubt of all, however deep their convictions, who have not truly fled to the hope set before them. There was another ground of prejudice against the whole work, arising from the circumstance that the Lord had employed in it, young men not long engaged in the work of the ministry, rather than the fathers in Israel. But herein it was that sovereign grace shone forth the more conspicuously, do such objectors suppose that God ever intends the honor of man in a work of revival? Is it not the honor of his own name that he seeks? Had it been his wish to give the glory to man at all, then indeed it might have been asked, why does he pass by the older pastors and call for the inexperienced youth? But when sovereign grace was coming to bless a region in a way that would redound most to the glory of the Lord, can we conceive a wiser plan than to use a sling of David in bringing down the Philistines? If, however, there may be some whose prejudice is from the root of envy, let such hear the remonstrance of Richard Baxter to the jealous ministers of his day. Quote, what? Malign Christ and gifts for which he should have the glory and all, because they seem to hinder our glory? Does not every man owe thanks to God for his brethren's gifts, not only as having himself part in them, as a foot has a benefit of the guidance of the eye, but also because his own ends may be attained by his brethren's gifts as well as by his own? A fearful thing that any man that has the least of the fear of God should so envy at God's gifts, 
that he would rather his carnal hearers were unconverted and the drowsy not awakened than that it should be done by another who may be preferred before them. The work of the Spirit went on, the stream flowing gently, for the heavy showers had fallen and the overflowing of the waters had passed by. Mr. McShane became more than ever vigilant and discriminating in dealing with souls, observing also that some were influenced more by feelings of strong attachment to their pastor personally than by the power of the truths he preached. He became more reserved in his dealings with them so that some thought there was a little coldness or repulsiveness in his manner. If there did appear anything of this nature to some, certainly it was no indication of diminished compassion, but on the contrary, proceeded from a scrupulous anxiety to guard others against the deceitful feelings of their own souls. A few notes of his work occur at this period, November 27th, 1839. A pleasant meeting in the Cross Church on Wednesday last for the seamen. All that spoke seemed to honor the Savior. I had to move thanksgiving to God for his mercies. This has been a real blessing too, Dundee. It should not be forgotten in our prayers and thanksgivings. November 28th, Thursday evening. Much comfort in speaking. There was often an awful stillness. Spoke on Jeremiah 6, verse 14. They have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, and so on. December 1st, this evening came a tender Christian, so far as I can see. An exposition of that text, I will go softly, or of that other, thou shalt not open thy mouth any more. A child of shame made one of honor. Her sister was awakened under Mr. Baxter's words in St. Peter's, of whom he asked, Would you like to be holy? She replied, Indeed, I have often wished I were dead that I might sin no more. December 3rd, preached six times within these two days. December 8th, saw JT in fever. She seems really in Christ now. Tells me how deeply my words sank into her soul when I was away. AM stayed to tell me her joy. JB walked home with me, telling me what God had done for his soul, when one day I had stopped at the quarry on account of a shower of rain and took shelter with my pony in the engine house. He had simply pointed to the fire of the furnace and said, What does that remind you of? And the words had remained deep in the man's soul. December 11th, a woman awakened that night I preached in J.D.'s garden about two years ago on Ezekiel 20, verse 43. For 20 years she had been out of church privileges and now for the first time came trembling to ask restoration. Surely Emmanuel is in this place and even old sinners are flocking to him. I have got an account of about 20 prayer meetings connected with my flock. Many open ones, many fellowship meetings, only one or two have anything like exhortation superadded to the word. These I think it must be our care to change, if possible, lest error and pride creep in. The only other difficulty is this. In two of the female meetings, originally fellowship meetings, anxious female inquirers have been admitted. They do not pray, but only hear. In one, M and J had felt the rising of pride to a great degree. In the other... M. could not be persuaded that there was any danger of pride. This case will require prayerful deliberation. My mind at present is that there is great danger from it, the praying members filling themselves on a different level from the others, and anything like female teaching as a public teacher seems clearly condemned in the word of God. The following narration is account of the revivals in early America from 1815 to 1819 by Joshua Bradley. 
accounts of religious revivals in many parts of the United States from 1815 to 1818, collected from numerous publications and letters from persons of piety and correct information by Joshua Bradley A.M. of Albany, New York. The Lord has done great things for us. He has not dealt so with any nation. Declare his doings among the people. Ackworth, New Hampshire. Nothing has appeared like a revival in this town until 1814. In this year, the Reverend P. Cook was ordained. At the First Communion, after his consecration, 16 offered themselves to the church. Immediately after this, instances of individual conviction made their appearance in different parts of the society, and one and another were made to rejoice in God. A solemn and strict attention was paid to the word preached, and the good work progressed gradually until September 1816, in which time about 60 were added to the church. Every seat in the house of God was filled, not with drowsy, inattentive hearers, but with awakened immortals, hanging on the lips of the speaker with almost breathless attention, looking as if their everlasting all depended on the proper improvement of a single sermon. Neither were the people satisfied with attending merely on the duties of the sanctuary. Conference meetings were established in different parts of the society and were attended with increasing interest. About this time, our winter schools began, and several of them enjoyed the singular blessing of pious young men to instruct them. Feeling that responsibility, which every guardian of youth who knows the worth of the soul will feel, they blended divine with human learning. And while they were careful in teaching the young idea how to shoot, they were no less anxious that its first growth should be heavenward. In a school in the western part of the society, a regular course of biblical instruction was introduced. Questions were proposed weekly, and one evening in each week set apart for their discussion. The answers to these questions were required in scriptural language. As soon as this mode of instruction was introduced, a visible alteration was seen in many scholars. They began to discover a greater relish for the scriptures. In searching for the answers to their questions, they felt an increasing desire to know more of the lively oracles of divine truth. Every vacant moment when relieved from their other school exercises, the Bible was taken up, and the unheeded tear which now and then would drop over the sacred page showed that its precious sentiments penetrated their hearts. On Tuesday evening, January 4th, 1817, when assembled as usual for the discussion of their scriptural questions, occurred a scene on which memory dwells with delight, and which no doubt excited these fresh acclamations of joy in heaven, which takes place on the return of every penitent sinner. The house on a sudden became a little Pentecost. The first question which was asked a young woman of twenty years of age was, What is regeneration? She rose, attempted to answer, failed and sunk under the weight of a wounded spirit. The next in order was called upon, but was unable to reply from the same cause as the former. 
the third issued in the same manner, and in a few minutes a whole school consisting of about twenty-six were overwhelmed in a flood of penitent grief, and cries such as these were heard in every part of the room. How can I live? What shall I do? God be merciful to me, a sinner! With these were mingled a precious, anxious request. Do, dear master, pray for me, pray for me in particular. In this scene of general distress, a master, though no stranger at the throne of grace, and who had previously attended prayers in the school daily, was too much agitated by the occasion to govern his passions to commend his pupils to the Lord Jesus. At this time there was sitting in the midst of this weeping assembly a young man who was remarkably delivered from the dominion of sin and made a trophy of redeeming love a few days before, who had but just found a throne of grace for humble suppliants to approach, and who possessed no distinguishing qualifications to fit him to recommend his despairing schoolmates to the mercy of God. Seeing the perturbation of the master and the distress which prevailed on every side, he rose and with apparent composure said, Let us pray. He prayed and it was evident God heard, for he was an instrument of his own choosing. A modest youth, naturally diffident, a newborn soul of yesterday, committing in language perfectly appropriate the wants of his distressed companions to that wonder-working God who alone is able to forgive sins and impart spiritual life to the soul. It was a scene sufficiently interesting to rouse from lethargy the most stupid sinner and kindle within him a lively sensation of the day of judgment. When this prayer was ended, the master had so far recovered himself as to be able to offer up a fervent petition in behalf of his school. When he closed... It was thought expedient to invite some of the neighbors to come and behold this exhibition of the terrors of the Lord. Two men, professors, who had children in the school were called. One of these next took his turn in prayer. After some conversation, the aforementioned young man, next the master, then the neighbor, each a second time sought in prayer for that grace which alone could help in such a time of need. By this time the evening was far spent, and proposals were made to retire, but the scholars unanimously were unwilling to leave the house or separate from each other. The impression which seized their minds seemed to be that it would be departing from the immediate presence of Jehovah. The exclamation of Jacob was strikingly verified, and he was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place! This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. After much entreaty, they were, however, persuaded to go home to their respective families. Next morning, information being received of what had taken place, a conference meeting was appointed at 1 o'clock p.m. Here was a spectacle presented which must have excited the admiration of angels. Scholar holding in his hands the Bible or Testament, and searching for his life for that spiritual bread, which if a man eat, he shall live forever. The assembly was large. During this meeting, many became convinced of their lost condition and began to think it high time to awake out of sleep and call on God before they perished. On this melting occasion, the stoutest heart seemed to dissolve like wax before an increasing fire. The Friday evening following, the weekly conference returned in the center district. Here, at an early hour, was presented the little band literally clad in the armor of the gospel, holding in their hands a sure directory to eternal life. 
It was proposed that each scholar should read some passage, psalm or hymn, descriptive of the state of his mind. Some by this time were delivered from the burden of sin, which had so heavily pressed them down, and that hope which brings comfort to every true believer in Jesus had begun to irradiate the soul. This is known from the subject read. To hearts like these, the sentiments contained in the 136th Psalm were found to be in perfect unison, as were those of the 51st, to many others, who seemed overwhelmed by the waves of contrition, whose tremulous voices faltered as they read, and often before the subject was ended died away in the silence of grief. It must be confessed that the Christian spectator needed a moment's reflection to determine whether the ground on which he stood was purely earthly. It was evident that the Holy Spirit was there. Many, while the scholars were reading, received for the first time in their hearts a pointed arrow from the quiver of the Almighty, and like their fellow sufferers on the day of Pentecost were led to cry out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? The work spread powerfully. Next morning another school in the east part of the town assembled for their usual school exercises, and it was soon discovered that the master was completely incapacitated to proceed with his ordinary instructions, on account of the weight of conviction which lay on his mind. Fifteen of his eldest scholars were immediately in a similar situation, and in a short time the neighbors were called to attend this solemn vision, and the school was transformed into a religious conference, and continued thus until night. For some time after this, not a day returned without the joyful tidings that someone was convicted, or someone made happy by being reconciled to God through the merits of a Savior. This revival spread its benign influences into other schools, and many souls in this town have given evidences that they were sealed for heaven. May parents feel the importance of choosing pious instructors for their children, and may the ministers of Christ be clothed with salvation. Wilmington, Delaware, 1815. This work made its appearance agreeable to God's usual way of gathering souls under the banners of His abounding grace. The Reverend Mr. Dodge was a distinguished instrument of awaking sinners. His brethren were brought into great distress and perplexity and expected that their pastor would leave them to manage their differences without his personal attendance. Amid their tribulation, they were unable to call on God. He heard their prayers, frustrated a calculated removal of Mr. D, poured out his spirit among them, and crowded their house of worship with souls who trembled at the word and cried for mercy. Mr. D was soon so deeply impressed with this singular display of divine power that he was constrained to alter his former arrangements about leaving the place and enter with all his strength into the work that increased around him. Every event seemed to augment the concern of multitudes. The sudden death of a young man alarmed many. They viewed themselves advancing with all possible rapidity towards the dreary mansions of unalterable misery. Their impressions were so great that many were scarcely able to leave the house where weeping and sighs and prayers abounded. Meetings were frequent. Preaching, singing, praying, and exhorting became very pleasant work. The children of God were refreshed and engaged in the revival with increasing ardor. 
Ministers who visited this place caught the fires of the sanctuary and preached Jesus with power. The sitting of the Delaware Association afforded the people much entertainment. This was a solemn season. Many were wounded in their hearts. Such a vast concourse attended that the doors, windows, aisles, staircases, and yard were full. And a large number went away who could not get near enough to hear the speakers. The work went on so powerfully that it became impracticable to dismiss the people as usual. Many would meet Mr. D. at the pulpit stairs, crying for mercy, often obliging him to spend one or two hours after preaching in conversation. One day, while he was speaking, one of his deacons informed him that there were some young men in the gallery who were so much affected they could not leave the house and wished him to go up and converse with them. He crowded along the aisle, speaking to many, till he came to the foot of the stairs which he ascended, and, oh, who can tell the feelings of his heart in seeing a number of young men pouring out the penitential tear and each one saying, I fear I have sinned so much I can never be forgiven. The people crowded up from below, and about an hour was spent in preaching Christ unto them. This is none other than the house of God and the gate of heaven. The happy subjects of this work have been principally used from 14 to 25 years of age. One of only 11 years obtained a comfortable hope. The experience of this child was very interesting. One day after relating many things, much to the satisfaction of Mr. D., he interrogated her thus, How does your past life appear in your view? She replied, Oh, very black. Do you feel a hatred to your former ways? Yes, sir, I do feel a great hatred to them. Why do you hate them? Because God hates them. Do you think God would be just to send you to hell for your sins? Yes, sir, I do, and wonder he has not done it long ago. How do you expect to be saved? Through the Lord Jesus Christ. How does Christ appear in your view? Oh, very precious, one altogether lovely. Do you feel so much love for Jesus that you could forsake all for him? Oh, yes, sir, I could forsake father and mother and all my brothers and sisters for him and everything else in the world. This work spread among other congregations. The Reverend Mesters Blackburn and Patterson of the Presbyterian denomination were greatly blessed in their visit and preaching in this place. The Spirit descended, and every cheek appeared bathed in tears, and many cried, What shall we do to be saved? The people might truly say on that occasion, Let all with thankful hearts confess, Thy welcome messengers of peace, Thy power in their report be found, and let thy feet behind them sound. North Haven, Connecticut the Baptist Society in this town was organized by the author. The Spirit descended upon it, and about 50 were hopefully converted in 1810 and 1811. In June 1811, a respectable council of ministers and delegates convened and gave the young converts approbation as a church. The revival continued gradually for nearly two years. In 1813, the author moved to Vermont, and they remained destitute of a pastor until 1817. Yet they held meetings regularly every Lord's Day and enjoyed the gifts of ministers more than half of the time. Darkness began to cover the people, and every professor complained of stupidity. 
They felt unwilling to live at this cold distance from the life-cheering beams of the Son of Righteousness. Therefore, some more sensibly affected than others, with a sense of their backslidings and God's usual way of visiting his people, proposed to spend a day in fasting and prayer. A day was appointed, and the church and a few others assembled. This is in September 1815. He who never was absent when his people unite to pray made them feel the weight of their sins. They sighed and wept, not only for their own souls, but for the conversion of others. Two young women were awakened at this meeting. The church began to revive. From this time, two conference meetings were attended in a week. These meetings were soon crowded, and many souls were moved to cry for mercy. The exhortations of the brethren were greatly blessed. Ministers were called to visit this people, and blessed be God they came in the name of him who is exalted as a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. They could say, Our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. The Reverend Mestres Blakesley, Bentley, Talmadge, Miller, Bullies of Tullin, and many others came over and labored to the satisfaction of saints and the alarming of the ungodly. These ministers were instrumental in building up Zion in this town. Mr. Blakesley, being the first who came after the commencement of the revival, was most distinguishingly owned and crowned with success. He spent much time in preaching, visiting, and exhorting from house to house. The power of God was felt in every part of the society. Every meeting was numerous, although the roads, storms, and other circumstances attendant on the seasons combined like an army to garrison the people in their houses. In a time of this refreshing from the presence of the Lord, many experienced renovating grace, and about forty joined the church. This work, like most awakenings, was principally among the youths. Yet there were two or three instances of conversion among those of thirty or forty years old. This people still continue in spiritual prosperity. O Lord, save thy people and bless thine inheritance. Feed them also and lift them up forever. Salisbury, New Hampshire a number of Christians in this place held a prayer meeting every week for some time before the revival began. In July 1815, they were much encouraged in beseeching the Lord to revive his work, for several young women who were employed in school keeping were so deeply impressed that they were obliged to dismiss their pupils for some time, not being able to discharge the duties expected from them. The Holy Spirit was sent to apply the balm of rich grace to their wounded hearts. The work soon spread with great rapidity. Ballrooms and other scenes of amusements were deserted. The still small voice of truth made its way to the heart without exciting noise or enthusiasm. In the commencement of the revival, a girl of twelve years, being in great distress, said at the close of one of the meetings, Oh, how much precious time I have spent in vanity! How can the Lord have mercy on so great a sinner? In a short time, the Lord bestowed delivering grace, and her tongue uttered praise to her exalted Redeemer. Many united with her in walking in the paths of wisdom and professing Jesus before men. The ordinances of the gospel were attended with great solemnity and peculiarly blessed numbers. 
In less than two months, 49 were added to the Baptist and a considerable number to the congregational church in this town. When the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. Said Witch in Blue Hill, Maine Previously to the works beginning in these towns, the Lord had shed some mercy drops upon those westward. The brethren appointed meetings of fasting and prayer, and the work appeared to progress towards the east. In February 1816, the Baptist minister in Nobleboro came on a visit to Blue Hill. Under his preaching, the work soon became visible. Its progress was so rapid that it soon extended into every part of the town. It was solemn and still, but remarkably powerful. Its subjects were children, youths, and the middle age. Now multitudes of thoughtless, giddy youths who just before were engaged in the height of vanity were seen flocking to meeting every day. They seemed to pay the utmost attention to the precious word of God that was preached among them. In April it began in Sedgwich and spread in every part of the town and into many of the adjoining towns. The oldest Christians in that region say they never saw a work of grace equal to this since the eastern shores were inhabited. They have seen reformations equally powerful, but none before so extensive and so free from inconsistency and confusion. It was enough to affect the most hardened infidel to attend the prayer meetings of the youths and children and to behold the order they maintained. Their prayers and exhortations were short, but generally to the purpose and very spiritual. These meetings have been remarkably instrumental in awakening those who are going on the way to ruin. In a few months, 150 have been added to this church and a considerable number to the Congregational Church. 104 to the Baptist Church in Blue Hill and about 30 to the Congregational Church in that place. The good work spread into a number of towns of which I have not obtained sufficient information to give the public correct accounts. Thomaston, Maine, 1816 when the Reverend Mr. Baker was first settled in this town, he found that the young people were very much given to lightness and profanity. To change their morals and render them amiable in society, he introduced a Sunday school which soon had the desired effect. Early on that blessed morning, prayer meetings were appointed and well attended. Also one conference meeting on a weekday evening. The precious Savior ever ready to bless the endeavors of his people, soon gave encouragement to these well-laid plans and these noble exertions by pouring out his Holy Spirit upon his servant and handmaidens. Their meetings became large and very solemn. There the deep sigh of the anxious, the silent tear of the humble penitent, and the joyful thanksgiving of such as were delivered from the bondage of sin, formed a very interesting scene. Christians were constrained to exclaim, God hath in very deed appeared to plead his own cause and wipe away our reproach. To see young children walk in the streets early on the Lord's Day mornings before the sunbeams covered them, and old men walking every one with a staff in his hand for very age, was a sight which angels must have seen with more than common transport. Sixty were added to this church. These new numbers were from 11 to 20 years of age. A gradual work appeared in Camden, and 20 were added to the first church. 
Among the free willers, many were brought to bow to the mild scepter of Jesus and adhere to him with full purpose of heart. In Hope and in Lincolnville, there has been a glorious display of God's astonishing grace. Great is the work, my neighbors cried, and own the power divine. Great is the work, my heart replied, and be the glory thine. Mount Desert, Surrey, Ellsworth, Trenton, and Sylvan have been visited with refreshing showers of mercy. Such displays of grace have never been witnessed in those regions since that country was settled. This revival appeared in 1816 and spread along the eastern banks of Penobscot River. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as a rose. And of Eden, and of Columbia, and Addison, and Steuben, and Goldsboro, it shall be said this and that man was born there. Brunswick, Maine, 1818. This work commenced in 1816, and Dr. Baldwin of Boston was one very honored instrument in the all-powerful hand of Jesus in awakening the careless. He preached in a large hall at 7 o'clock on the morning of July 22nd, and about 50 were roused from spiritual slumber and saw themselves verging towards infinite misery. The Savior soon extended his hand and delivered them from plunging into remediless ruin. More than 80 were hopefully renovated in the space of three weeks. At every meeting, some came forward and told what the Lord had done for their souls. At one meeting, 30 related their experience, and as many more were desirous to come forward. What a wonderful work! Were Christians prepared to attend this exhibition of salvation and receive converts daily into the churches? They truly were, for days of fasting and prayer were appointed and strictly attended for more than twelve months before. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. With pleasure they might hang upon the prophet's lips and say, His glory covered the heavens, and His brightness as a light. He had horns coming out of His hand, and there was a hiding of His power. The ordinances were attended with an unusual blessing to spectators, and the exhortation of young converts were often rendered powerful means of extending the work and refreshing the souls of old professors. The greatest regularity was preserved in all their meetings. Persons of all ages from 9 to 80 years old have been the happy subjects of this reformation. About 300 have joined themselves to the churches in this town. Bath, Maine, 1816. The first favorable appearance in this place that God was about to revive his work was an uncommon flocking to meetings, attended with a remarkable stillness and solemnity upon those who came. The spirit seemed to descend like a mighty rushing wind, and soon a general attention prevailed through the town. Each of the religious societies shared in the work. The means God has seen fit to honor in spreading this work are many. A Methodist brother in a more humble condition in life than multitudes was apparently blessed to the awakening of numbers. The appearance and conversation of those who were brought out of darkness into God's marvelous light carried conviction to the hearts of many. Numbers went thoughtless to see the converts profess Jesus before men, but returned deeply impressed with a sense of their sin and danger. The preaching of Christ has been the power of God and the wisdom of God to many, 
who walked in darkness and saw no amiableness in him, who is altogether lovely in the express image of the Father. The aged, middle-aged, and youth have been enabled to come to Jesus to cleanse them from sin. Some influential characters and some in the lowest walks of life have been hopefully born of the Spirit. Among the young merchants, the work was so remarkable that it was often said that all the stores had become meeting houses. In the time of this revival, all have seemed endeavored to keep their passions within the bounds of reason, and only a few have made any noises that could disturb the most devout worshippers of the Lamb. And these were so overwhelmed with the sense of their exposedness to endless punishment that they groaned under the weight of their sins and trembled at the thoughts of approaching judgment. Deep solemnity has generally marked a penitent and a holy smile of joy and complacency the pardoned sinner. Since the beginning of this good work, about 250 have been added to the churches in this town, which are Congregational Baptist and Methodist. Hebron, Maine. There were frequently appearances of a revival in this town before it really quickened dead sinners and caused them to follow Christ in the regeneration. A more than usual concern is manifested by professors for a revival of religion. Meetings on Lord's Days were full, and there seemed to be some attention to the word in time of worship, but no visible fruit appeared until the summer of 1816. It was first reported that several youths were thought to be under serious concern for their souls. In September, a revival was apparent. Some had found comfort to their minds, and others appeared anxiously concerned. In October and November, the precious work kept increasing and spreading till it was perceived in all parts of the society. December was a solemn and pleasing month. Prayer meetings were attended three times in a week and sometimes oftener. These were much crowded, and the power of the Spirit was so manifested with the people that there were but few who were not awed with His presence. The young converts were made cheerfully to sing, while the eyes of the older Christians glistened with tears of joy and others sighed under their worse than Egyptian bondage. The feelings of every one were more or less affected. The good news that this or that youth was under concern for his soul, or rejoicing in the love of God, daily awakened attention. Although their meetings were so crowded and the attention so great, no disorder appeared. All was regular. Only one spoke at a time with the greatest calmness and yet with fervency. Reader, hast thou ever experienced this grace? What are all the splendors of the world when compared with the joy of such a season? This work has been principally among the youths, and very few over thirty years appears to have had a share in it. The subjects of it expressed a deep sense of their vileness and of the justice of God in their condemnation, but not with a great deal of terror, as it respects positive future punishment. Their wretchedness was in themselves, and their hell in their own breasts. They were soon brought to see that they must be holy or miserable forever. Generally, when they received comfort, their joy at first was but small, their views faint, and their hope not more than proportionable. In many instances, they expressed a measure of delight in the Redeemer when they hardly dared to hope at all. They gathered strength of mind very gradually, but their trials seemed more than usual, and it was some time before any of them were constrained by the love of Christ to make public profession of his name. In January 1817, twenty mostly youths professed their faith in Christ. 
This is a solemn day and long to be remembered with an holy pleasure. In February and March, a number more came forward and owned their Lord. About 50 in this town have been the hopeful subjects of regenerating influences. The district of Maine has been highly favored of God. That region a few years ago contained only here and there a village and a few towns skirting along the shores of the Atlantic. Now it is populous, rich, and religion abounds among its inhabitants. To the list of towns of which we have read accounts unfolding God's free and unbounded compassion to sinners, we may add with much holy pleasure Alfred, Waterboro, St. George, Nobleboro, Jefferson, Deerfold, Bowdoin, Sumner, Livermore, and Fayette. Upon these and many lying in their vicinity, the Spirit has descended, and its omnipotent energies have been experienced. Not unto us, not unto us, but to thy name, O God, shall this glorious and gracious work be ascribed. Many whose heads are whitened with age, who have long borne the burden and heat of the day in the gospel vineyard, declare that never has such exhilarating tidings gladdened their hearts, nor such bright prospects met their eyes. Multitudes are now embosomed in the churches, who a few years since were roaming the wilds of nature and spreading their way to the regions of blackness and unspeakable misery. May these converts all adorn the doctrine of God their Savior, and finally sit down with the sanctified in the kingdom of heaven. Woolburn, Massachusetts this work first made its appearance in the Lord's Day Evening Conference meetings. Those were not statedly held until November 1816. They were first held in private houses and but thinly attended. But thinly attended as they were, a resolution was formed among the Baptist brethren not to forsake the assembling of themselves together, but to maintain these little meetings so long as two or three would come. The meetings were maintained, and the number that attended them, instead of diminishing, gradually increased. Nor was it long before a disposition to converse and to hear, and a concern for the prosperity of souls became manifest. A few Annas and Simeons, who had been long praying and waiting for the consolation of Israel, now began to be revived and fully convinced that prayer had been heard and answered, and that Jesus was at hand. Becoming zealous was manifest, and exhortations and prayers, especially in the latter. Conference meetings began to be established in the Congregational Society, and the number of anxious sinners fast increased. Indeed, experimental religion began to be generally considered the one thing needful. The appearance of their religious assemblies was changed. It was such as plainly indicated that many were in their imaginations by a secret invisible impulse arraigned before the awful judgment seat of Christ. Often did the steady fixed countenance and the gentle flowing tear forcibly express the contrition of the heart. A spark sometimes falls, kindles, and spreads till the whole city is involved in flames. So did the divine spark which fell in Woburn, kindle, burn, and spread till nearly the whole town was involved in one sacred gentle flame. Both societies and persons of almost every age have shared in the work. Many have been constrained to say, Come and hear ye what the Lord has done for our souls. O come magnify the Lord and let us exalt his name together. In addition to other meetings, they held one weekly, particularly designed for serious inquiring sinners. These were found interesting and profitable. The number that attended was frequently from twenty to forty. 
It is more easy to imagine than to describe the feelings naturally excited on meeting with this number, most of them in tears, being under deep concern for their souls. The relation of candidates for admission to the church have been clear and satisfactory. They expressed their full belief of their hearts, being totally depraved, that none could change them but God, that Jesus Christ was a whole Savior, and that all who were once united to him would be kept by his power through faith unto salvation. The additions made to both churches in one year from the commencement of the revival are nearly equal. The whole number is about a hundred and sixty.